Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration and collaboration creates community and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck and this is Face to Face. So my next interview is with Bob Logan. He's a professor, uh, scientist, and elementary uh, particle physicist. Did I get that right, Bob? I sure hope so. Uh, you're either rolling your eyes right now or you're smiling with me. But he's a professor emeritus uh, in physics at the School uh, of the Environment and 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 in St. Michael's College, U of T. He's he's worked with Marshall McLuhan. He's had lunch with Niels Bohr, for heaven's sakes. you got to listen into this conversation. But the reason we came together today uh, on on this interview was to to talk about a play at the Soul Pepper Theatre in Toronto, soulpepper.ca, uh, where a play uh, called Copenhagen is going to be playing in, in, in the very near future. And it's a conversation between Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg. And there's speculation around what this conversation was all about and what it had to do with you know anything and and so uh, it's Bob Bob's a Bob's a, a consultant on on the play and um, we we got into that a little bit about the play but we talked about so much more we talked about science and we talked about the importance of the Heisenberg principle and 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 why Niels Bohr was such a big part of that we talked about abstract science and Chinese inventions and about why theories are important and, and, and how God doesn't play dice with the world. We talked about the ethics of, of science and why it's important to actually step into these things and, 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 and be intentional and be focused and be committed uh, to, you know, to, to, to a worldview and to a particular way of seeing uh, the world. And, and, and Bob, uh, boy, boy, did I learn a lot in this interview. I think you're going to really enjoy it. One of the things that we wind up talking about near the end of the uh, view is this idea of being an interdisciplinary disciplinary thinker and and bringing things together in a complementary way and so you know don't get too specialized says bob and you're going to want to step into this don't forget davidpecklive.com for more information about my writing and my speaking you can also find out more about uh 
what I'm doing on Patreon.com, and you can get behind the work that I'm doing and support it financially. Uh, and if you can't do that, I totally understand. But boy, would we appreciate um, you know a review on iTunes or Google Play. That would really be helpful. And don't forget to uh, rabble.ca for more uh, information about other podcasters, other bloggers, other people are doing similar kind of work that I'm doing, and 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 they're there. Rabble.ca. Dig into it if you can. And by the way, if you're looking to advertise uh, on a podcast, why don't you choose Face to Face? I'm I'm at over a million downloads, and we have a presence on uh, the the web. You're gonna you're gonna want to find out a little bit more about that. Reach out to us uh, through the website, and uh, don't touch that z- uh, dial. Uh, Bob Logan coming right up on all things scientific and the new play uh, in Toronto, Copenhagen. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We're joined by a very special guest here with us today. Uh, Robert K. Logan is here uh, with us. I guess some would call him Dr. Logan, but he's allowing me to call him Bob here today. Bob, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us on Face to Face. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I always like talking about science. Uh, I want to popularize science and make people... uh, comfortable with uh, dealing with science, which is why I uh, got involved with the project at Solpiver. Well, and, and probably why you're Professor Emeritus in Physics at the University of Toronto, School of the Environment, uh, and, and St. Michael's College, I believe. And I'm sure there's a whole other list of, of, of uh, bullet points on your CV that I'm sure you could share with us, but that's at least a decent overview, isn't it? Yes, it is, but I'll share one more. Okay, go. <laughs> I'm the chief scientist at the Strategic Innovation Lab at Ontario College of Art and Design. So, so, so I have to say, I, I, I did a little bit of research on you beforehand, and, and uh, I'm, I'm dying to know which photograph I have of you is the most accurate, just so you know. Um, but uh, atmospheric physics, biological physics, condensed matter physics, earth atmospheric and planetary physics, the one I really... None of those apply. None of, none of those are you? Nope. I'm an elementary particle theorist. Oh, you're an elementary... Wow, okay. I was just trying to sound smart. <laughs> Those are wonderful fields, but uh, not mine. Not yours. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your field before we talk about the play uh, that you're involved in at Soulpepper Copenhagen. You're a, you're a consultant on that, uh, opening, I think, in April of this year playing for about four or five weeks and uh, you've been you've been uh, brought in as a consultant on the play because you actually had lunch with Niels Bohr who's a uh, one of the three characters in the play as as uh, some of us probably already know but but why don't you um, and then of course we need to talk about Marshall McLuhan and poetry and physics and there's so many things we're going to get into but tell us a little bit about your background and about this uh, w- w- sorry I've forgotten already elementary particle physics right well, I was an undergraduate and graduate student at MIT, and I did my research in elementary particle physics. That's trying to understand the behavior of the tiniest things that we are made of, which are quarks, electrons, protons, neutrons, and a whole host of uh, particles, um, mesons, baryons, the list goes on and on. I became interested in uh, science at a very young age. When I graduated primary school, I was asked what I wanted to be when I grow up, and I said I want to be a nuclear physicist. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I made that dream come true. And it was while I was at MIT as an undergraduate in my first year that I actually met Niels Bohr 
I was sitting in the lunchroom when he walked into our cafeteria for lunch. He was all by himself. And I was sitting with my classmates, and I said, oh, my God, there's Professor Bohr. And he's all by himself. We should keep him company. And my friend said, yeah, yeah, Bob. And I said, well, I'm going to keep him company. And I jumped up and joined him on the line hmm. and stood behind him, and I said, good afternoon, Professor Bohr. And he wheeled around and introduced himself and said, hello, I'm Niels Bohr. And I said, well, hello, I'm Bob Logan. He said, will you join me for lunch? And I said, it would be a pleasure. So when Soul Pepper, um, I heard that they were going to do the play Copenhagen, I decided to contact them and see if I could be of some help. Now, I was familiar with the play Copenhagen because um, in 1971, I started a course at the University of Toronto called the Poetry of Physics mm. and the Physics of Poetry. And the Poetry of Physics was teaching physics to humanity students without mathematics. Hmm. And the Physics of Poetry is to discuss literature that has to do with science. Mm. So we looked at the poetry of Shakespeare and John Donne and saw how they dealt with uh, the physical world. And one of the uh, texts that I used in my course was the play Copenhagen. Well, okay. And we actually had a reading of the play in the class. Uh, I assigned the students to different parts. And so I was quite familiar with the text, and I think it's a very important play, and one I hope that your listeners will attend. So just before we dive into why you think it's an important play, because I really want to know more about it, I've read the play uh, quite a few years ago, um, yeah, but I've never actually seen the performance, and I'm definitely going to be hoping to get down to, to see it. In fact, I might have to uh, twist your arm for some free tickets there, Bob. Mm. But we can we can talk about that later. How, pray tell, did you know that you wanted to be a nuclear physicist at such a young age? I have no idea. I'm just curious about how the world was made up. But why not? But why not biology? Why not? Uh, you know, I mean, there are a lot of other sciences, right? A lot, a lot of hard sciences. That sounds really specific for somebody so young. Was it? Was it film? Was it? Was it books that you were reading at the time? Was it? Well, uh, I, I heard about Einstein, so I went to our public library and took out a book by Einstein, uh, which I had trouble understanding naturally. Um, when I was only thirteen years old. <laughs> right. But <laughs> I was determined to figure out what that was all about. So when I, yeah, when I was 13, I'm just trying to think of what I was doing. I think I, st I started reading philosophy at a pretty young age, but it wasn't 13. But I'd like to think I was probably asking some good questions. I think I was skateboarding. I was doing a little bit of sleight of hand magic and, and maybe even still playing with a bit of Lego. I'm not sure. Well, I was doing all the kid stuff. In fact, when I was in high school, one of my friends said to me, you know, for an egghead, you're amazing because you can play basketball, too. <laughs> <laughs> egghead meaning uh, a little too big of a brain? Is that is that what you're yeah, talking right. about? Yeah, right, right. Got it. Got it. Um, love the fact that you've actually, I mean, it's so it's so amazing to me that you, you had lunch with Niels Bohr. Did you stay in touch with him after that? Was it a, a one-off meeting or was there, what did it go? one-off meeting. But later in life, I met his son, Agabor. Mm-hmm at uh, Los Alamos uh, Labs in New Mexico. Um, and uh, I, on a trip to Copenhagen, where I was asked to be uh, the external examiner of a student, 
I contacted uh, Tomas Bohr, the grandson of Niels Bohr. So I met the whole Bohr family. So what do you, what do you what do you take away from a lunch like that? Do you, do you come away from that just inspired? Were you were you feeling uh, was it was it a, was it a reality check for you or you know what what kind of guy was he like? I mean yeah, I know you can only tell so much I suppose over lunch, but but what any any insights? Well, it was it it was very touching that such a famous person would take time for mm. a first student and encouraged me and uh, I guess he, he uh, made me feel like uh, I could do something in physics. Right. I guess based on the questions I was asking. And were you and were you able to share with any of that any of that with him over over the lunch or was it more of a you just kind of more more you know adulation and and so thrilled to meet you kind of a lunch? Well, I asked him about what he was doing in Denmark. <laughs> what he was doing in Denmark. What questions he was working on. Right. That that should be the title of the play. What what were you doing in Denmark? <laughs> um, the thing about Niels Bohr is he's just such a, a beautiful soul. I, uh, he was uh, sort of the um, spiritual godfather hmm. of... Um, hmm quantum mechanics in the uh, first part of the 20th century. And when I say godfather, I don't mean like in the mafia. I mean Mm -hmm. a spiritual leader. Tell tell me why um, the play, and maybe even, and this comes out in the play, I suppose, we're talking about a meeting uh, that Heisenberg and Bohr had uh, many years ago, um, you know, there's all kinds of nuclear implications, etc. I'm sure you're gonna you're gonna tell us a little bit more about those. But but why why is this play important? Is it important because of the questions it asks, because of uh, the, the 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 issues that it talks about, and how relevant they still are today? Tell, can can you can you unpack that a little bit for us? Well, it, it's important because um, Heisenberg. Uh, was probably there to try and uh, get something from Bohr to help him in his project to develop a nuclear bomb for Hitler. Hmm. And uh, as uh, as is related, as soon as uh, uh, Heisenberg brought up this topic, Bohr immediately cut off the conversation. Now, Niels Bohr is anything but rude. I mean, if you took the time to talk to a first-year student um, over lunch, uh, he certainly wouldn't be rude to uh, to Heisenberg, mm. who he had worked with for many years uh, for the Nazi era. Now, Heisenberg uh, developed his idea of the uncertainty principle uh, while... Uh, working with Bohr at the Bohr Institute in Copenhagen. Um, in fact, uh, I believe that Bohr had a influence on Heisenberg's uncertainty principle because Bohr developed uh, a concept called complementarity. He said that a particle like an electron mm-hmm. can behave sometimes like a wave and sometimes like a particle, and that light, which we generally think of as a wave, 
can sometimes behave like a particle. And uh, this is an important part of the uncertainty principle. Uh, Heisenberg never gave credit to Bohr for his contribution to developing the idea. Uh, but uh, Bohr is certainly uh, someone with whom, without whom uh, quantum mechanics would not have developed the way it did. What, you know, I'm just, I mean, obviously the, the play has practical implications for, for a theater company and for selling tickets and for, you know, people going out on the town and enjoying an evening out and, and, and the, you know, theater subscriptions and all those kinds of things. How, how does something like the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle, complementarity, how, how do those things play out in my life? I'm not a scientist, you know, I understand the importance of it, the value of it, and I'm, boy, am I glad there are people like you out there. Um, is, well, is, we're talking about things that happen at the subatomic level. Right. Not part of our everyday experience. That's However, right. <laughs> the way quantum mechanics affects you is that um, the computers you use, the smartphone you use, are all based on solid-state physics, which is based on quantum mechanics. Mm. Now, Bohr and Einstein had a fantastic um, argument over the years about whether quantum mechanics was a complete theory or not. Uh, Einstein said, well, with the uncertainty principle and quantum mechanics is based on probability, uh, it's not a complete theory because he said God doesn't play dice. Right. And Niels Bohr said, "Look, we have a uh, a way of describing nature. Uh, it might not conform to the way we thought about large particles, like billiard balls, but it works. It's practical." Uh, he's quoted to have said uh, to one of his students who was. Um, talking about these philosophical questions, he said, oh, shut up and just calculate. <laughs> <laughs> of course, he said it in a jovial, joking kind of way. You know, it's like, uh, you can talk about how many angels are on the head of a pin, if you like, or why quantum mechanics is not a complete theory because it has uncertainty. But on the other hand, it, it works. It helps us understand nature better. And it, and would you say that was one of the uh, and sort of coming back full circle to my one of my earlier questions about your level of interest that that was your curiosity your you you were you were looking to figure out how it all worked. Yes, I was. <laughs> you wanted you and wanted to see the nuts and bolts. Yes, I was trying to understand how how it worked. But then, uh, as life went on, and with the, teaching the poetry of physics, I became interested in philosophical questions and what we do with this knowledge mm. that we're gaining. Mm. And um, uh, that led me uh, to um, to develop a, a study of future studies. Um, just before I got tenure, 
my chairman asked me, uh, Bob, we'd like you to teach this summer. I said, yes, sir, no problem. I had not much of a choice, right? Right. And I said to him, but you know, sir, I taught last fall. I'm teaching now in the spring. I'll teach in the summer, and then I'll teach again in the fall and the spring. I said, that's a long time without a break. Do you think I could have the next winter term off? Oh, sure, Bob, no problem. So I thought to myself, oh, I'm going to avoid the Canadian winter. And I thought I'll go to Italy or Israel and where the weather is nice and avoid a Canadian winter. Well, then I discovered that it's not so warm in, in uh, January and February in those places. And then I hit upon the idea of going to Mexico and study with um, Ivan Illich, the futurist. Mm. And it was there that I um, became a futurist. And I came back to the University of Toronto and uh, suggested that future studies would be an ideal interdisciplinary study for one of the colleges. And I wrote a report to the president, uh, who had given me $500 to travel down to Mexico. And two weeks later, I was asked to start uh, a program at New College on future studies. So I started recruiting some of the more interesting professors at the University of Toronto. Uh, Don Chant, the guy that started Pollution Probe, was one of my recruits. Um, Ken Hare, who was the director of the Institute of Environmental Studies. And Arthur Porter, who was a uh, chair of the Industrial engineering department. And when I saw Arthur Porter, he said, hey, we have to get Marshall McLuhan involved. And I said, wow, that would be incredible. So he telephones Marshall and tells him, Bob Logan wants to start a future studies program, a new college. McLuhan said, is that the guy that teaches the poetry of physics? And Porter said, yes. And McLuhan said, send him over. I want to have lunch with him. So off I go to meet Marshall McLuhan. And uh, we go to the uh, faculty cafeteria, and no sooner did I put my tray down on the table uh, than he said to me, what have you learned in the poetry of physics? And I said, well, I don't know if I've learned anything yet, but I've, I'm working on an interesting problem, trying to understand why science began, abstract science began, in Europe and not in China, because the Chinese invented so many things. Mm. And I reeled off a list of Chinese inventions, which include silk, paper, ink, gunpowder, printing press, water wheel, windmill, um, magnetism, clockworks. And this upsets Italians, but noodles. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, And so I thought, why did science begin in, in Europe and not in China, abstract science? And I thought, told the clue, and I thought, monotheism and codified law might be the answer. The Chinese are spiritual, but they're not monotheistically inclined. They have laws, but it's not codified. And I said to McLuhan, combine codified law with monotheism, you get the idea of universal law. And McLuhan said to me, what else do we have in the West they don't have in China? And I just was stumped, and I said, I give up, I don't know. And he said, the alphabet. Hmm. And I groaned, 
because I remembered how he connected the phonetic alphabet with um, deductive logic and abstract science in Greece. And so together we sat and chatted and wrote a paper together, hmm. which we called Alphabet Mother of Invention. And that started my um, um, work with Marshall McLuhan, You're which lasted until he passed away in 1980. I was going to say, uh, a, a long, uh, I mean, I've looked at your CV, and and uh, you've, 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 you've published a lot, you've written a lot about McLuhan, and, and, and connected to the media, and to language, and, and, and so on, and it's, uh, yeah, it's really quite remarkable. And this started with another lunch meeting, so uh, cl- clearly you've had a lot of success with lunch meetings, Bob. <laughs> lunch is good. <laughs> <laughs> any any other people? Any other people we need to know about that you've met over lunch in the last thirty or forty years? Well, um, my uh, this um, future studies program that I organized at uh, New College. I called it the Club of GNU. GNU was the uh, college mascot, and uh, it was a it was a takeoff on the Club of Rome, which was a, a group of industrialists and government leaders that were involved in future studies and wrote and sponsored a, a study called Limits to Growth. Mm. And as of and and uh, that those media, the uh, Club of Gnu met for lunch <laughs> uh, every Wednesday. Um, and so again, lunch comes into. Well, you know, you, well, you know what's just so interesting to me about that is, you know, the 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 art of of, of conversation and and relating to people and and just asking good questions and and isn't that what a great lunch is really all about or a dinner, you know, a breakfast exactly. a breakfast meeting? It's not about the eggs and how they're cooked. It's about the conversation and the commiseration and and the places you go to together. It seems to me that's that's that's. I mean, that's a. I mean, I think that's a beautiful uh, insight to even our conversation here today. That you know maybe that maybe the big takeaway here is is we need to have you know we need to spend more time with people over over good food you know that, that's not a bad that's not a bad that's not a bad insight to andrew baines who was a principal of new college who said you know i'm going to serve a bottle of sherry at these luncheon meetings just to signal that this is a social event this is uh, a time to relax. Mm. We don't have to have, you know, the academic usual, I got you kind of right. conversation. Right. Right. No, that's excellent. Yeah. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll start bringing Sherry to more of my lunch meetings. I think that's a yeah, good idea. I, tell, tell me a little bit. By the bit. way, yeah, um, yeah. That, that Club of Gnu gig led to my political career. Uh, which maybe your audience would be interested in knowing about. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't. Um, I, that, that didn't come up in my research. Well, I um, most um, most elementary particle physicists I know are not also politicians. <laughs> I was I was a a, a, a policy um, wonk. A policy wonk. Yeah, um, I would invite people from Ottawa, civil servants, to come to the club of new and give reports about what the government was doing. And um, one of the uh, fellows that came mentioned my name to uh, one, of, one of the members of parliament uh, named Paul McRae, 
who Trudeau had charged with looking at uh, the futures mm. portfolio. And so McRae started, with, whenever he was in Toronto, would, would uh, look me up and we'd have a conversation. And one time he said, well, how would you like to be the policy chair for the liberal wing of the Ontario, the Ontario wing of the Liberal Party? And I said, great. He said, well, now you've got to get elected. So I had to go around and meet different people in the party, and uh, I became the policy chair and uh, was one of Trudeau's advisors. Wow. How long did you sit in that position? For about two years. Two years. It's a, it's an interesting, I mean, I think it's an interesting segue into a conversation about science and politics today uh, and, and where it kind of sits. I'd, I'd love to hear... Uh, your thoughts on that and you know we before we hit the record button we talked a little bit about fake news and and some of the stuff going on south of the border and it's not just south of the border this kind of you know uh, this kind of conversation or skewed conversation if I can say that is kind of going it's kind of going on all over the world uh, I think that was a cue for me to share my one liner. It was it was a cue Bob thanks thanks yeah, for probably. taking yeah yeah and it's a good one liner I really want you to share it and I, I just thought of it today for some reason. Uh, I, my thought was, uh, Mr. Trump, uh, the reason there's so much fake news is because you are a fake president. <laughs> and let's hope, let's hope people tweet that out tonight. That's what I'm hoping. Right. We, we can get that out on social media. Fake news, uh, or fake president equals fake news. Right, or fake president generates fake news. Or fake president generates fake news. <laughs> oh man, that's pretty pretty funny. And but uh, let's uh, yeah, back so, to being serious. Yeah. Let's talk about science and responsibility. Well, yeah, science and responsibility, the ethics of it. Where does faith come into that? Does it even come into the conversation? I mean, this I where also... Neil Bohr was so important because oh. uh, Niels Bohr was the son of a philosophy professor. And Niels Bohr was not only a physicist, but he also studied philosophy. Very familiar with the um, uh, philosophy of Soren Kierkegaard. Oh, is that right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the morality of, of, of uh, Niels Bohr was impeccable. When the Nazis were um, persecuting Jewish scientists and Jews in general, Bohr stepped up and organized a campaign to rescue these poor folks. Hmm. And one of the people he rescued was my professor at MIT, uh, Victor Weisskopf. Wow. Um, So the uh, another dimension of Copenhagen that's important is the the social conscience of a scientist. Mm. Hmm. Something that Niels Bohr had and something which Werner Heisenberg did not have. I don't know how Werner Heisenberg could have worked on a project to develop an atomic bomb for Germany under the leadership of Hitler, knowing what was going on in Germany. Um, And so that, to me, is the important dimension of the play Copenhagen. So, so the so the ethical questions that arise as a result of the science that one chooses to to do or to not do, right? The responsibility one has of one's scientific um, discoveries. 
By any chance, did you did you work with um, um, John Polanyi at U of T? Well, uh, John Polanyi and I are both members of something called Science for Peace, mm. uh, which is a group of uh, scientists at U of T that are concerned with peace studies. And we're also members of the Pugwash Movement. Hmm. The Pugwash Movement is a movement of scientists, uh, East and West Block scientists, um, it was started in 1956 in Pugwash, Nova Scotia, by um, uh, Cyrus Eaton, the industrialist who made his fortune in Cleveland, but who grew up in Pugwash and had an estate there. And he donated that estate as a, a place where scientists could meet to discuss uh, nuclear disarmament. Mm. And. Uh, I only became a member of that organization in 1979. Uh, I guess I was invited because of my work with uh, Trudeau right. and the Liberal Party. Um, and that's how I, I know John Polanyi. It's, well, the reason I ask is I, I, I did my master's degree in philosophy at the University of Guelph, and I wrote on uh, uh, Polan uh, Polanyi's father, Michael Polanyi's notion of tacit knowing and, and, and out of his text, Tacit Dimension and, and Personal Knowledge that he wrote back in 58. But he, he one of his first essays that he wrote as a philosopher was, Why Did We Destroy Europe? And it just, as soon as you talked about the social conscience of a scientist, that's kind of where I went. So now I, I can go full circle around back to Bohr and Weisskopf. Weisskopf, who was Bohr's student, or uh, so, someone that Bohr helped, my professor at uh, MIT, uh, Weisskopf was also a member of um, the Pugwash movement. Mm. And uh, he and I and a group of other Pugwashers greeted uh, Solzhenitsyn when he was released from uh, Gorky. Solzhenitsyn was a dissident, a Soviet dissident, and he was kept in the city of Gorky, uh, not allowed to mingle with people in uh, Moscow or St. Petersburg. And in the 1988 um, Pogwash meeting that was held in Sochi, um, no, Dagomis, um, in Dagomis, uh, near Sochi, uh, we all met up in Moscow and were taken by a chartered plane down to Sochi and then driven to Dagomis. And there um, we met uh, Solzhenitsyn, who had just been uh, released by, by hmm. the uh, Soviet authorities. Um, I think I'm getting Solzhenitsyn's name wrong. You mean the you mean the pronunciation? No, I mean <laughs> I think Solzhenitsyn is a, an author. I'm thinking of someone else. The famous Soviet dissident that worked on the nuclear uh, created worked on the hydrogen bomb um, project for the for the Russians. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, sorry. I yeah, I can't I can't pull that name out of a hat. I could I can I could try and yeah. dig that one up. But but either way, a Soviet dissident. Right. 
it's it's you know it's remarkable the 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 experiences the the lunches you know that you you have had uh over the years and the the connections and the dots and i think it's interesting you know kierkegaard and to hear that bohr was a was a uh, a student almost of kierkegaard or familiar with his work i love i love kierkegaard's line and i've certainly used it before but you know you live your life stepping into it you make your choices you are a socially conscious scientist by stepping into the future and then you only really start to understand those choices when you look back and and uh you're look you're looking back uh i would imagine and 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 stepping into this play copenhagen and what what hmm, i, I i'm not going to try to reduce it to one question uh uh bob but what well, what I are what are, are including remarks what are, what are people going to take away from, from the play? One from of the play? lessons that we can learn from all of this mm-hmm. is that um, Niels Bohr was a scientist, but also a humanist. Mm. He studied philosophy. He, he uh, was interdisciplinarian. Heisenberg, on the other hand, was totally focused on his career as a scientist. Mm. And um, it's very important that uh, one does not become too specialized hmm. so that one does not look at the other side of the coin. Hmm. So, you know, um, wisdom is as important as knowledge. In fact, more important. And the thing that Niels Bohr had was not only scientific knowledge, but wisdom. And the thing that Heisenberg lacked was the wisdom to know that what he was doing was wrong. Mm. And so I leave that thought with your audience. No, it's a great, it's a, it's a great, it's a great place, place to end. Have, have you seen, have you seen the play? This new, this new version of the play? I've seen it played in my class of poetry and physics. Oh, okay. I haven't seen it on stage. So it's going to be it's going to be at the Soul Pepper Theater, I think in Toronto. I think it's April 6th to May the 4th. Well, uh Bob certainly appreciated the time we we've, we've spent together today. Uh I I really do appreciate there's so I mean we barely scratched the surface, but I I, lo- I love the insights. I love your sense of humor. I I love the fact that you basically have given me another reason to start having more lunches. Like I mean I mean I say that with sort of a a smile, but there's also a very really sincere <laughs> I think that's a sincere and wonderful and 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 just very human sort of insight. We've been talking with uh, Dr. Robert K. Logan uh, here today on Face to Face about uh, Copenhagen and, and uh, elementary particle physics and, 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 and eating lunch together. Bob, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for spending this time with me. Goodbye, everyone. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.